Hello and welcome to Back to Britpop, it's Chris. Now, on this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Damon Minchella of Ocean Colour Scene. The band formed in Birmingham in 1989 and released many studio albums between 1992 and 2007. Damon talks about his musical influences when he picked up the bass, also the turbulent times of that debut album and the future uh, of his songwriting and collaborations uh, that are coming up in 2021. It's a fantastic uh, conversation and uh, really pleased that Damon was able to join me on the show. Join me afterwards for the usual uh, chat about social media and reviews and whatnot. In the meantime, here's Damon. Welcome to the podcast, Damon Minchella. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, Chris. Pleased to speak to you. Most of these podcast episodes, I, I ask the uh, the famous question of how how's your year been so far? But it's it's been pretty rubbish, hasn't it? I was just going to say, what's your lockdown experience been like? Um, well, yeah, I would say a uh, bit of a seesaw, really, because we live in a really nice part of Wales near Rockfield, so the countryside's beautiful and it's very quiet and peaceful. Uh, but then you see how it's affecting your friends who live in cities and work colleagues and what have you. Yeah. Uh, you know, and also like, I've got lots of friends, obviously, in the in the sort of live music industry who have basically had their uh, livelihoods sort of stolen from them by the government with um, just being told to retrain as, um, you know, psychiatrists or, or post men or women. Yeah. Highly skilled professionals. So on that side, it's terrible. Uh, but I've actually been done, doing just about... Apart from the gigging side, which has obviously stopped completely, I've probably done just about the same amount of recorded and um, record studio recording stuff and and writing as as I would anyway. So, on on a lot of levels, nothing's changed. But on a many levels, it's obviously completely unrecognisable from what it was prior yeah. to March the seventeenth. Yeah, which seems so far away. It's very hard to see, you know, how we're ever going to get back to some yeah. sort of normality. Yeah, and it's also when when eventually there is a go-ahead to do any form of concert that would be approaching the, the old-fashioned norm. I was just concerned about sort of consumer confidence to, A, buy a ticket so that the concert will go ahead. But also it's like, would you know, when things are on a relatively even keel, would your desired choice of entertainment to begin stand in a massive, big, sweaty box with loads of people who might have COVID? yeah absolutely <laughs> you know so it's it's difficult and you know a lot of people have, and a, a lot of artists a lot of crew a lot of management a lot of labels and a lot of tech companies have tried to get past it by trying to do different forms of stream concerts and nigh on latency free technology so people can interact with each other but it's just not the same no there's something very well visceral about being in a room with yeah. other people in the sweaty box Yes. Um, well, it was just really interesting to, to sort of find out a bit more about you and your sort of musical early years, really. What 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 got you into bass, and, and what were your sort of early heroes? Oh, that's easy. Uh, Les Pattinson from Echo and the Bunny Men. I first heard Echo and the Bunny Men when I was having my cornflakes, about to go to school at the age of twelve or thirteen. Radio One was on in the background as usual, and then this song came on out, out of well, from outer space compared to everything else that Radio 1 were playing. And it was The Cutter by Echo and the Bunny Men. Uh, and they said the name of the band at the end of it. So I went to my record shop on the way home from school. They didn't have that album. So I bought the only album they had, which was a, um, the next album, which is called Ocean Rain. I bought that. And then in the end of me, there was announced that this band were going to be playing in Birmingham. I knew nothing more about them. So I just bought a ticket. 
and went and the band came out, blew my mind, and there's this guy playing this blue, big blue guitar, and he was like like some Greek god on stage. And I thought, <laughs> I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. Um, and then I found out that that was a bass guitar. And then, um, weirdly, me and Les are really good friends now, even though he lives in Australia. He emigrated about 10 years ago now, and I bought the bass that he used on Ocean Rain and a couple of his amps, and we've stayed in, off him, and we've stayed in touch ever since. So it was really that, because prior to that, it was just football for me. I kind of yeah. liked music, but I wasn't in love with it. And then the Bunnymen just changed everything for me. It's funny, isn't it, how one, how one song or one band can really sort of just completely change your outlook on what you might want to do for your future. Oh, absolutely. I was talking to um, a famous bass player, Guy Pratt, the other day, who's, you know, Pink Floyd and, and what have you, and, mm. you know, Madonna and everything. And to him, it was, he was on holiday in Cornwall and he was staying at a cousin's house. And this older cousin who he really looked up to just gave him um, a cassette and said, just listen to that before you go to bed. He turned it on. It was Babber O'Reilly. And he's like, this is amazing. Turn the cassette, cassette over and it was, won't get fooled again. And that was it. Yeah, yeah. Again, him the sort of thing. He was really into football. And then that was like, oh my God, I've got to do this. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to do it. Can you remember your first base set and where you bought it from and how you, how you got hold of it? Oh yeah. It was off, um, there was this catalog called K's catalog. Yeah. It was, a, it was a Gibson SG copy. And I don't even know the name of the company. You had to get a taxi from the uh, strings to the fretboard. It was <laughs> that bad. I didn't have an amp. So then I uh, sort of twisted my dad's arm into buying me an amp, which is this massive H&H amp, which we got for the princely sum of 30 quid at the time. But it had four inputs. So then I joined a band at school. So all of us would play through my amp in my bedroom. So we had a drum machine two guitars and me on bass, all of us playing through this one amp. And it just, it obviously sounded horrendous, but to us, it was like the most glorious sound ever. Um, so yeah, that was the first one. When you managed to make music together, no matter how young you are and, and your first bands and first sort of musical outings, you, looking back on it, you must think, uh, you know, it would have, been, would have sounded absolutely shocking. But at the yeah. time, it's that creation of something completely, well, not necessarily original every time, but just that, mm. you know, doing something on your own by yourself. Um, it's, it's such an amazing feeling. We used to, my, my early band, we used to rehearse in an old church and mm -hmm. uh, we were called Bad Obsession. And <laughs> we, we, we did the worst Guns N' Roses and Iron Maiden covers. Yeah. Um, but it, it just I just remember it just being you know, every Saturday morning just being completely buzzing at sort of how I know, what it was 12 13 but they, those are sort of golden moments aren't they really that sort of shape what you want to do for the future oh yeah and it's what I've found is the people who um, sort of stick with it are the ones who end up having some form of you know I mean just not I don't mean stick with it you know through the ups and downs but um, all those sort of early days when everyone's saying get a proper job and you're like, no, you still got that spirit of those, even the feeling of those, those initial exper early experiences of just making a racket with your mates at the time. Mm. And the people who, who don't lose that feeling are the ones who then carry on. It's, this is a conversation I've had with Richard Ashcroft loads. And it's like the early doors of the verb. It's like, you know, they, he would hand design each cassette cover, yeah. you, know, you know, and yeah. they'd, you know, they'd copy them you know, on a tape to tape machine of these terrible demos are done to sell at gigs. And they, you know, they're like, it doesn't matter if no one likes it. We're just, we're just creating something, you know, you know, it's that feeling of like, just, we're just doing something for us is, is, is wonderful. Mm -hmm. 
With Ocean Connoisseur, obviously you, you were probably with many bands before you, you came to, to that sort of group, but um, how did you kind of meet in the first time, first dance? Um, well, the second band I joined, so I had my first band at school, and this is just after we moved from Merseyside to the Midlands. So I formed this band, um, it's basically to make friends, and I, I've just seen Eck and the Winning Man play in Birmingham, and I was like, well, this is what I'm going to do. And then some kids I didn't really know at school said, oh, you play bass, don't you? And I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, but I'll just say I do. We need a bass player. And then it then so happened that they were friends with a slightly older band which had a lead singer called Simon Fowler, obviously Foxy from Ocean Coliseum. And the bass player in his band was a, kid, a Jewish kid from the same school, same year as me, but I didn't really know him. But they had a gig on a Friday and he couldn't play because his parents wouldn't let him out because they were quite orthodox. So he said, oh, you play bass. Will you depth for me at this gig? I was like, yeah, what sort of music is it? And he's like, oh, it's all that Velvet Underground and the Stooges. I was like, oh, yeah, I can play that sort of stuff. So then I met Simon at Soundcheck. We did the gig. I probably played it really badly. And he was like, do you want to join the band? Get rid of the other bass player. And I was like, ooh, that's a bit mean. But we're not really friends, so let's do it. Um, and then that band two years later mutated into Ocean Colour Scene. So it wasn't that many bands, that, but that band was called The Fanatics. We signed to a record label called Chapter 22, which who had Pop Will Eat Itself and The Wonder Stuff. We had one play on John Peel, but we were also Chapter 22's worst selling act of all time. We put out one EP and it sold 42 copies. Oh, wow. You, you must have been ecstatic with that, though, really. <laughs> oh, I was ecstatic with 41 yeah. copies. Yeah. And the fact that someone had bought one and given it to John Peel and he played it. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was amazing. Yeah, well, I was still really young. Yeah. And then, as I said, a couple of years of that band, it kind of mutated into Ocean Cover Scene anyway. So it wasn't in that many bands. Okay. Probably three... Three and a half, because the, the the half became Ocean Colour Scene. Your success rate is pretty good then, in terms of bands and success. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're really kind of uh, in the incarnation of the first kind of sound of Ocean Colour Scene, and especially the label uh, and uh, record deals that you had was quite turbulent, wasn't it? It was kind of almost like um, a bit of a false start, would you say, in terms of that first? Oh over. yes, a hundred percent. I mean. We got signed to a big deal, to a big major record label, and we were terrible. I mean, we were still finding our feet. Yeah. And um, the only reason why it was because a guy called Bob Stanley, who went on to form St. Etienne, but at the time he was um, working at the Melody Maker, he saw us supporting some, someone or other, I can't remember who they were, in Manchester. There was about 10 people in the audience, and he was blown away by our performance, and he wrote a review in the Melody Maker. And... I'm going to paraphrase it and get it slightly wrong, but basically we're saying, this is everything the Stone Roses wanted to be, the Lars nearly were, and the Beatles should have been. Oh, wow. I, was like, I mean, I, come on, man. seriously. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, we weren't as good as the Lars or the, the Roses, and definitely not the Beatles at that stage or, or ever, but through that, and then we started getting loads of record label interest, and we signed this huge deal. We didn't get any money typical sort of way things were yeah uh, and we signed and they wanted us to make the record that we sounded like live and then um the whole grunge thing happened so then it was like oh you need to put you in the rock producer and then the screaming delica thing happened oh then we need to put you in with the guy who engineered screaming delica 
And then we made the album a third time. By that stage, we were like, I don't even know whether we were coming or going. Yeah. But that, that experience of making that record and not doing it the way we wanted to is then what formed us to basically, if I may say quite boldly, is like, fuck you to the music industry when it came to making Mosley Shoals. It's like, we're just going to do exactly what we want to do. And if people love it, then that's a bonus. How did that material come about then? Because as you say, it was like a, not necessarily, a, you know, you were, you were trying to be moulded by what was happening out there in the music industry at the time and what labels wanted you to do. So how did you create kind of your iconic sound, if you like? Well, the process of making that first album three times and going, working with some good producers, with some not so good producers, um, we learned the trade ourselves, you know, what it was that made us tick as a band, what things we liked, what things we didn't want to do again. And we started writing some of the songs that ended up on Moja Shoals whilst we were making the first record. Right. We would just stick them down on four tracks and not play them to the record label because we knew we were going to leave them. <laughs> and then we were starting to form our own sound. It was like we came to a decision by not going to do anything that we don't want to do. And we left the record label. No one was interested in us. But they took an, an injunction out against us that we weren't allowed to play live. So we couldn't even do any gigs whilst the um, leaving the contract was being sorted out. So we got this really awful two-space room in Birmingham with like a one-bar electric heater. And we just lived there, basically, just making records on four, um, songs on four tracks, then an eight-track, and then we upgraded to a 16-track. I learned how to engineer. We Everyone honed the songwriting craft. And then Weller got in touch with um, Steve, saying, do you want to join the band? So And Steve was bringing back loads of really good records that we'd never heard of or wouldn't have even thought to have listened to. Mm. And then I started working with Paul as well. Got, got the same sort of... Almost like a musical education in, yeah, this is what you're doing, but this, have you thought about doing this as well? And by the time we hit early 95, we were like, we're, we're ready to make the record. And we made Moji Shoals in about six weeks. I engineered it all. We had our own, we upgraded the space to the studio that used to be Dexy's Midnight Runners. And then we got Brennan Max, who did um, the engineering production for... Stanley Road to come in and mix it for us because that's the only bit we couldn't quite do. And before mm. you know it, we'd made something. We we're like, oh my god, mm. you know, this is. And it's not like it came out of nowhere. It came out of us being stubborn, really, but also learning our trade the hard way. Some of those those songs on that album, I mean, there are. I said iconic already once. I don't want to keep using the same <laughs> word, but they I mean, for me, it just encapsulates just that that era doesn't it i mean the riverboat song and 100 mile city and uh, others they kind of just i don't know i just wanted to know kind of how you felt in the room when the riffs uh, and the structure to those songs sort of came together on that record would you you must have been just giddy with sort of some sort of excitement with those tracks yeah i mean when you look back on it you think it must have been like that but <clears throat> when you're in the process of living it and making it Coming up with the ideas, sometimes they're really quick and easy. Like um, Riverboat was super easy. Basically, Steve and I wrote that. And then we got Oscar to play on it and gave Simon a cassette and say, come back with some lyrics tomorrow. And he had. And I set up a, a microphone, distorted it, and he, he put the vocal down. And that entire song, top to bottom, took about six hours to, fit, to, to, to write and record and 
mix the you know the the rough mix of oh, and then yeah. the songs like line in your pockets which is an absolute classic that went through a lot of revisions and moving around and oh should we put the middle eight there should we move it back here so when you people listen back to the record and occasionally when i do as well you think wow that's amazing but when you're in the process of making it you can't divorce yourself from where you are to go this is incredible because it's actually you're in the middle of doing it so you can't have that removed perspective yeah yeah you know um, and then it's only when then you start gigging and people are singing the songs back to you and then you so the manager says you've been b-listed on radio one and your midweek chart position is number 12 and they're like oh my god yeah. you know and that's when the, you allow yourself to be giddy <laughs> yeah because yeah. then obviously you had that success with the album and you you toured pretty much the world with it didn't you really oh yeah i mean absolutely in 1996 so me and steve were still playing with weller we did 247 shows crikey yeah and on i remember one week we'd had uh two gigs of weller and then three with ocean color scene and on the three on the four days off we is that four or five no on the two days after we recorded four b-sides and made a video you must have been absolutely knackered <laughs> <laughs> yeah we were actually <laughs> it's okay when you're relatively young though yeah yeah what are your um experiences of uh sort of the lock stock and two smoking barrels soundtrack sort of gig how did how did that come about because that really i get think would that have launched you again to a, a, a broader audience or do you think you'd already been sort of well established by then um, I think we were, <clears throat> excuse me, pretty well established by then. <clears throat> that was purely because, um, now what is his name? Oh, the director. Who Guy Ritchie. Him. Yeah, Guy Ritchie was a, a big fan. <clears throat> and he'd basically written the title credits after he'd heard 100 Mile Eye City. So he'd cut the credits to it. And at the time, Lockstock was a really small budget film and no one really thought he was going to do anything. So the um our marketing guy who's a really good friend of mine a guy called matt cook who was at mca records at the time just actually set, gave me a rough cut of the, of the film and said just watch the first couple of minutes and after then you probably won't like it so i listened to it oh god there's our tune watch the rest of the film i thought oh this is cool and i just said to the others let's do it so yeah. that was it really and obviously that film went on to well it launched his career yeah yeah definitely Resulted in him uh, marrying Madonna, which was probably not the best, <laughs> best ever decision. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, if it's a choice between marrying her and not marrying her, you could probably have just to see how it, how it goes, don't you? Well, really? I, suppose <laughs> it was, yeah. um, I was interested to, to sort of ask you about Marching Already and the writing process for that, because whilst those two albums are only a year apart, aren't they, in terms of release, was there, what was the pressure like to, to follow up Marjorie Souls and, and what was the kind of writing like for that album mm, well it was a bit of an odd one because we also did the b-sides c-sides and free rides which was released in the middle so in the space of 18 months we released mosey shoals the double b-sides album and marching already so i guess we're looking at about 40 songs mm. um but bearing in mind we'd been started to the writing process in 93 and we had half of marching already written during the Moses Shoals, sort of the back end of the Moses Shoals writing, because we, we'd, we'd already written a few of those, those songs. It's like, we can't fit them on Moses Shoals. So then we just kind of carried on. But then, of course, when you hit that stage, you're touring a lot. 
Mm. Uh, you know, and it's and then the record label are like, okay, we need to follow up, we need to follow up. So we were kind of half lucky that we had half of it written. And then it's like, okay, well, we need to, we need three months to get another 30 songs together to pick six that we really like to, to complete, the, complete the, the, the rest of the album. And the label are like, oh no, we can't. And we were just like, you're not telling us what to do. You know, we've been down this route before. It'll be ready when it's ready. And, uh, you know, I think we've given ourselves too much time because in about four weeks we'd written, it, we'd written about another 20 songs and picked six we liked and then that was it. So that wasn't too stressful, to be fair. There's a lot of bands that have a very different experience, don't they, with that, with that difficult, well, the difficult third album is, is what they say. Isn't yeah, it? But, well, <laughs> yeah. I think that's where we were, our, our experience is lucky because we didn't have the difficult second album. We had the awesome second album. We had the difficult first album. And I think that's where a lot of bands really struggle. It's like the process of the first album is really organic and, you know, the, they capture the live sounds and then they go on tour and it's like, oh my God, we haven't got any songs. Ours was a horrific first album experience. Yeah. And then we like, we are doing what we want to do. And we just wrote, a, you know, a sack full of songs, basically. Because that, that sort of recording release process for you guys worked, didn't it, for, for many mm. years thereafter? Because you, you kind of were releasing records every, every two to three years after that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd say all the way up to uh, North, well, North Atlantic Drift, really. I think that was the kind of the similar sort of process. It was like, do an album, tour it for a year and a half, write for six months, repeat, you know, rinse yeah. and repeat, basically. Yeah. What were your sort of memories of that period of time in terms of, you know, workload and, and fatigue? Do you remember sort of just, well, you, I suppose as, a, as you've got older now, looking back at it, you must think nothing but, you know, it's just an amazing part of your life and, you know, your life's gone into different chapters and events now, but were you tired a lot of the time in the 90s and early <laughs> north? <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah, occasionally. <laughs> But it's again, it's one of those things like <clears throat> when you're in the middle of doing it, you're, you're, you know, you live in the process. It's like I've got a couple of friends who are quite successful. Footballers all were successful. And, you know, I talked to them about what they did. I said, oh, my God, you know, you played in the FA Cup final. And uh, three days later, you were playing in, the, you know, the European Cup Winners Cup and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you play for England. And they're like, yeah, but that's just what I did. And then they're not being flippant and I'm not being flippant. It's just when you divorce yourself from the process and look back at it, you go, oh, my God, how did you achieve that? But I tell you what, working eight, eight in the morning to six in the evening in a factory is much harder work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to put into perspective. It's, it's yeah. obviously the, the, the amount of joy this would have brought to your life. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's one of those things, you know, when you're doing a, a job that you love, even though, you know, the hours and it may be intense and maybe stressful and you've got all the pressures, like, you know, you need to have a follow-up record that's at least as good as the first, blah, 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 all the travelling. But actually, as you said, it's bringing so much joy to what to yourself, but also when you take that that music out into a big sweaty box and people are going mental, yeah. you can't really beat that, you know. When did you, um, you know, consider taking a, a different route with the music then? Because you've, you've kind of, you're a doctor now, aren't you, in terms of uh, yes. teaching. So what, what decision, when did that decision come about? Um, well, I decided to leave Ocean Colour Scene in 2004 because I've been with the same three people for 15 years, which people ask me, why do you leave? And I'd say, well, if you worked on the same production line in a factory with the same three guys for 15 <laughs> years, you can go home at five o'clock or six o'clock. But when you're in a band, they come with you. Yeah. 
And at the weekend, they're living in the same house as you. And you go on holiday and they're with you. And you have Christmas dinner and they're with you. So after a while, <laughs> it gets to the point where you're like, I actually don't want to be with you anymore. And <laughs> um, so that was about 2004. I carried on playing with Weller till 2007. I was still working with Steve White, doing um, a lot of sort of jazz and funk stuff. And then I'd done a gig in Tokyo with um, this jazz trio that me and Steve White had, came back and had a really bad hand accident where I severed my tendons to my wrist, which meant I couldn't play for six months. And that's when I actually got asked the day after I thought I'd, you know, I could never play the guitar again, to go and do a music lecture, a music, um, a music institute in Bristol. And I said, well, I've just had this really bad injury. I can't play. They said, oh, we just want you to talk. So I went and spoke about music and they basically offered me a job. So we want you to become one of our music lecturers. So I thought, well, I'll do that till I can play again. Six months later, I got the go ahead from the hand specialist. My tens had amended. I can play again. And I just thought, do you know what? I'll just do the, t the two things at once. So it's pretty much what I do now. So I still do what I always did, but I combine it with the more sort of gentrified academic thing about you know trying to explain what creativity is what songwriting is what performance is i know you, you said to me you were still writing music but what, what kind of form does that take now uh well i'm i've worked for a company called various artists management uh, and i'm one of their songwriters and producers so i'm working with their younger artists at the minute and they look after um, Supergrass, Libertines, um, Tom Grennan, Charlie XCX, Ash Nico, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they're a great company. So, and I've got my own studio and I work with a friend of mine who used to um, be a part owner of Mono Valley, who actually lives next door to me. So we've been working with some of the younger artists doing production and doing some songwriting with them. Uh, and there's some amazing acts coming out. In fact, one, a girl called Rose Gray, who we're working with in a couple of weeks, she had her first play on Radio 1 two nights ago. So we're working with her, doing production and writing. And that's all coming out sort of in dribs and drabs now, but really sort of hardcore next, next year with that album releases and what have you. And then I'm still working with Richard Ashcroft, which is amazing. He is... I, he, he reignited my fire for um, playing live music again because working with Richard, he, he, he is the best performer out of everyone I've worked with. And that's saying a lot because I've, you know, performed with The Who, Paul McCartney, Jimmy Page, Paul, Paul Weller, my old bands, Paolo Nettini, Amy Winehouse, all these sort of people. And Richard, it has got it. He's, he's so, just—he's just endorsed hundred uh, percent, isn't he? Every single time I've been lucky, yeah, I've mean, seen him live many times, and yeah, he's just uh, embodies some sort of—I don't know—some some deity on stage. Yeah, yeah. He is. <laughs> I, I would say Rich, Rich, and he's—he's he's, weirdly Rich and I were born in the same hospital just outside Wigan as well. <laughs> um, but um, we like—not only we're really good friends, we. we we believe in the power of what it is we're doing, even though you can't put your name on it. It is that thing when you, you walk out on stage and you're, you're lost in what you're doing. The audience is lost in it. The sound is amazing. The lights are incredible. And the, the thing is, it's still, a, you know, I mean, Rich is about four years younger than me. I mean, I'm 51. So we've been around and done it a lot. We still believe in that thing, whatever it is that you can put across in music, that joy, that euphoria, the whole thing and of all we've made a couple of albums already which will be coming out 
at some point next year, the year after. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff without a time. I want to sound like an American in the can. <laughs> yeah, you can come at. I'll let you go in a second, but I'll, I'll give you one one final question, really, in terms yeah. of your ocean colour scene discography, if you like. But yeah. um, is there any one particular record that you you would say you were most proud of out of the output from those years? Oh, I get asked this a lot. And, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no, I, I have an uh, sort of on. Well, I wouldn't say an ongoing argument. Ongoing vague disagreement with my manager John Dawkins from various artists because his favourite is Marching Already, and he always ranks them Marching Already, besides Seasides and Free Rides, Mosey Shoals, and One from the Modern. And I'm like, yes, I get that, but I can't not have Mosey Shoals top just before what it represented to us doing it without any backing because obviously when we made b-side seasides uh marching already etc we're on big major label when we started making Moses shoals no one cared yeah apart from us. and that's why i love that so much and if i had to pick my favorite song we ever did would be a song called the downstream it's been absolutely amazing to speak to you and have you on the podcast and and uh, really interesting to hear about motion color scene the early days and and what you've been up to ever since and, and i really look forward to hearing uh, your future output with richard ashcroft brilliant well thank you christopher it's been a pleasure massive thank you again to damon minchella for joining me on the podcast it was amazing uh, to have him on multi souls i mean every time i hear anything from that record and marching already just there's something about any all those songs that just instantly transports me back to the 90s and those early years in bands and you know going to gigs and music and everything so it was really a great pleasure to speak to Damon thanks to everybody who's listened and downloaded and rated and whatnot on uh, iTunes and things so far it's it's massively appreciated uh, if you haven't left a review and if you haven't given a rating please do so it really helps also I'm on social media so give us a follow on all those platforms just search for back to Britpop and I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. So see you later.